You mentioned risk assessment, so I'd like to hear, if you don't mind, share a little bit about how risk assessment is used at the EPA. So there are two types of risk assessments. There's human health risk assessment, and then there's ecological risk assessment. Um, the, the, the methods are by and large the same in terms of the way of thinking about it, uh, the way of framing the assessment, but one is focused on ecological risk and the other is focused on human health. And so the way that EPA uses risk assessment, human health risk assessment, is that many, well, not many, but some of our laws um, actually require us to take action, to come up with standards that are protective of human health. And so when you think about what it takes to implement that, it means that you actually have to know something about the, the, the adverse effect right, that can come about from being exposed to a particular hazard that is coming from a particular source that the government wants to regulate. And then once you know about the hazard, you have to understand the probability of that hazard occurring in the general population for the levels of exposure associated with the releases coming from the facilities that you want to regulate. And to be able to connect those dots, we use human health risk assessment as both an analytical framework and also as a risk-based decision-making framework. So there are a couple of steps in that process. Um, the, the, the analytical core has four steps, and that's what we call hazard identification, uh, dose response assessment, exposure assessment, and also risk characterization. And then uh, bounding those two, and not really, I don't want to separate them, but in practice, um, you can do a risk assessment as a risk assessor and not be involved in risk management because that's usually for decision makers. So bounding the four steps, we do have um, an initial step, which is very critical. It's problem formulation, planning, and scoping for the risk assessment. And then there's the parts where you take the output from the risk assessment and you actually do something with it in terms of making decisions that will be protective of people's health. And that's the risk management. So um, do you want me to explain the steps in the risk assessment process briefly? Just you know, to... I, I would love to hear, for example, you know, I always <clears throat> thought it was crazy that acrylamide was kind of, it seemed like it was identified after the year 2000. And so I'm just curious, like, how do you end up identifying new hazards? How does that come about? Yeah, so that that's very interesting. Um, so there are a number of ways that it comes to us. Um, number one could be that if um, a new chemical is going to be produced, or if there's going to be a new use for a chemical, then um, that information, the, the organization, the company, um, the, or the corporate entity um, submits to the EPA that, you know, there's going to be this new chemical or something. And then it's subject to um, TOSCA, which is the Toxic, Toxic Substances Control Act. And, and because of that, EPA is now aware. And then there has to be an evaluation. <clears throat> and frequently... Um, that evaluation will need data to be submitted by the organization 
that is going to be introducing the chemical into commerce. So that's one way that it comes in. Another way that information comes in is, um, you know, because we know of certain uses, right? So we have um, certain consumer items that we use. And then scientists, like all of you, scientists um, who are constantly monitoring maybe um, people's exposures, like we would normally, <clears throat> excuse me, collect data using um, NHANES, which is the, uh, the, the periodic survey conducted by CDC. So sometimes CDC data, that NHANES data would suggest that there's um, increase in human exposure to certain types of chemicals in the environment. And um, because of that, we start looking for the environmental um, sources of such chemicals. And then researchers play a very significant role here because they begin to look at, <clears throat> they begin to use the tools of research to connect the dots in terms of um, what is being used in commerce um, and um, the, the, blood, the blood levels or um, biological um, levels, because it could be blood, it could be urine. Um, so biological levels of the contaminants that we're seeing um, increasing in the human population. So that's one way it's done. Another way that it can be done is sometimes uh, stakeholders in the community, you know, who are just aware of the activities of an organization can also submit and um, suggest that, you know, they would like EPA to take a look at um, the chemical, the releases from a particular company. So it's a, it's a, it's a variety of ways um, that information comes to the EPA about looking into a particular chemical to identify if it's a hazard. And then once, once a chemical, um, and then sometimes EPA generates that information itself. So once a chemical is identified as um, a priority chemical, and it could be prioritized based on pre preliminary data that um, a good a reasonable chunk of the population is exposed. Um, and of course, there's no number for reasonable. So a decision maker has to decide that it's significant. So um, to make that decision, there's also um, consideration of what what do we think are, or what do we know about the health risks that might be associated with exposure. And so combining that, um, those pieces of information then gives um, um, the impetus for it to be prioritized, for a particular chemical to be prioritized for an assessment. So we get information from multiple sources um, is the is the one sentence response to the question you asked. Okay, that's great. So actually, when you get into the, uh, the, the, the hazard identification step, it's really elaborate. Um, with hazard identification, what we're doing there is we're asking... Um, so, so the the, the response I gave you um, right before now is basically pointing you to how we even get the signal that you know we might want to look into a particular chemical if we haven't already developed an assessment for it, right? So there's that thing happening on the side, but then once we've made a determination that we want to look into a chemical, want to do a human health risk assessment for a chemical, then we're going to be kicking up that. A hazard identification is that step where you're asking the question, is this particular chemical stressor associated with um, negative health impacts? 
And um, part of that is also asking questions about who is affected, right? So this is where you look at life stages. Are children more sensitive? Um, are the elderly more sensitive? Um, this is where you, you scour the literature and look for information about the, the um, negative um, effects. So you're looking at different end, um, health endpoints. Is, is it a neurotoxin? Um, when it comes to children, you ask, is it a developmental neurotoxin? Is it a cardiovascular toxin? Are we looking at uh, something that has negative reproductive um, effects? And so there's, there's this whole realm of organs and body systems that you can look at. Um, you can look for literature on it, of course, informed by the, the nature of the chemical um, chemicals that look like it that we already know about and what they've done or what they've been associated with in terms of adverse health effects. And then you do your literature review. And when you do your literature review, of course, it will become apparent that you, we will look at death. Does it cause death? Um, and um, with the literature review, because we're able to look at animal studies, so these are called toxicology studies, um, and it's, it's studies basically mostly in rats, mice, and um, it's their control studies where the animals are exposed to the 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 chemical stresses of interest through the route of exposure that would be of interest to us. So if it's being emitted into the air, of course, you really want studies where um, it's air exposure, but some a lot of times you're getting studies where the animals are actually fed the, um, the, the chemical stressor. And then we also sometimes have um, access to human experiment data, um, of course, with, their, uh, with a proper IRB or institutional review board um, um, policies or, you know, followed to the letter. Um, so there can be human experimentation studies and then epidemiology data. So this is where scientists um, have gone out and studied populations, maybe in occupational settings, or they've, they've studied um, the general population that has been exposed to this particular chemical stressor. And uh, maybe they found associations or maybe not um, with regards to whether exposure has an impact on health. And so we pull together this wealth of information and, and or we look for this, this type of information. And when we find it, we pull it together in your hazard identification process. And sometimes we don't even uh, find enough information. And actually that is the case for so many chemicals, so many chemicals. We have very overstudied chemicals like lead. And we're still learning a whole lot about lead. And then we have barely studied chemicals, especially those ones that are being used in commerce, um, you know, that are being introduced to commerce daily. And we there are thousands of chemicals for which we don't have much information 